say that you are doing it exactly as you are supposed to be doing it, that it couldn't be any other way, and that your child chose you, which means that there's something about you that is unique, wonderful, and exactly designed for the child you are growing. Welcome to Claiming Your Confidence, the podcast. I'm Katrina Blowers, and as a journalist, speaker, and mentor, I know what it's like to have confidence. I also know what it's like to have to dig really deep and find it all over again. I've interviewed hundreds of high-profile people, and this is what I know for sure. We all suffer fear, imposter syndrome, and self-doubt, no matter how shiny our life appears to be. So let's reframe the confidence conversation together and uncover the hacks and secrets to get more of it. Claiming your confidence starts now. Dr. Vanessa LaPointe wants your kids to know that you've got this. As one of the world's most renowned parenting experts, she says there's no magic way of getting it right for our children. It's okay if it feels like it's hard and we are here to figure it out together. In this uplifting conversation, you'll learn how to become a more confident parent and raise more confident children, how to discipline without damage, and how dominant parenting pop culture often has us doing exactly the opposite of what we now know is best for not only our children, but for ourselves. Vanessa and I also talk about our shared experience of navigating the guilt that goes with divorce, and how contrary to common belief it doesn't have to mess up your kids forever. Let's claim our confidence with Dr. Vanessa LaPointe. Vanessa, I am so grateful to you for joining me all the way from the other side of the world. (laughs) Right. And I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me on. Now, I always begin and people um, who don't know this get a bit like, oh, this is a bit of a weird question. (laughs) But I always begin each episode asking my guests where you are so you can set the scene for us and what you're wearing so we can picture you in our mind. Oh, I love this question. So I'm sitting in my office at the clinic, which is um, miscellaneously decorated with uh, crazy paintings that my children have done over the years and that my my mother, who's an artist, has done. I have a surfboard stashed in the corner, not because I surf, but because I thought it looked really cool. So I bought it. And I'm all set up and ready to talk with you um, at my desk. And actually, I'm wearing, um, you have to picture it, a pink plaid dress from a shop in Brisbane that I purchased what? about three years ago. That's right. That's that's totally random. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect, right? <laughs> because you didn't know until just a minute ago. You knew I was from Australia, but you didn't know I was from Brisbane. So I right. love that. You're channeling the Queensland vibes. <laughs> That's wonderful. Now, the reason I really wanted to talk to you is because I think for many of us, our confidence really gets tested when we become parents and not just first-time parents. I think, you know, I'm now a mum of two. I have a 10-year-old boy and a girl who's just about to turn 13. And I feel like there are days where I definitely go, yep, you got this, you've done a good job. And then there are more days often than not where I just feel like I'm completely floundering mm-hmm. and I second guess every decision I make and think, oh my gosh, am I going to screw up my kids' lives? Tell me that this is completely normal. <laughs> yes, it is completely normal. And in fact, if that were not to be happening on some level, and for some of us that kind of um, uh, shake up in our confidence will be very loud and others of us, maybe it'll be a little quieter. But if it were not to happen at all, I would actually be really concerned (laughs) because (laughs) it would mean that there's something about you that is offline or that has become numbed out and tuned out for some reason. And I would be looking for ways to sort of defrost all of that for you so that you could step into your role as a parent in a deeply resonant, um, fully authentic 
way. And so it is a very normal kind of thing. Um, but it, it just because it's normal it doesn't mean that it doesn't take us by surprise. Oh, absolutely. And I've read that that you, when you, because uh, you've got two boys as well, how old are they? They are 13 and 16 now, and I just can't even believe it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So you're in the thick of it too. <laughs> so I, I read that when you had your first child, you said, um, oh, gosh, the, the hard part's over now. And the midwife or whoever it was who was in the hospital with you said, oh, sweetheart, it has only just begun. <laughs> <laughs> That is the truth. That is exactly how it went down. And what's really interesting, and I love to share this with other parents, um, is that like I had a doctoral degree in child development and psychology. I knew everything there was to know about parenting as this, you know, thing that we're supposed to do. Um, And yet I also found myself in that headspace of thinking, oh, no, (laughs) I have no idea what I'm doing. And I'm for sure going to wreck them. And why did anybody trust me to have a child? Uh, It should not have gone this way. And really, you know, going into what became kind of a years long, um, what I shall refer to as an awakening around who I really was and that my children gifted me the opportunity to enter into that kind of um, personal growth space because it unnerved me. Mm. That's something I've got to admit, I've only recently in the last few years really become aware of is my personal growth and the opportunity that being a parent affords for for that development, which we'll definitely get into a bit later. So for me, when I had my first child, when I brought my daughter home, I pretty much treated it like the biggest assignment, you know, uh, like university assignment of my life. And I just read every book that I could and tried to absorb so much information so I could do it, quote, unquote, right. And I know you've just written a book called Parenting Right from the Start. So let's go to those early days for anyone who's got uh, either a newborn or a very young child. What is, what is the best way? How do, we, how do we navigate through those really early years so that we feel like we've got some sense of, we've, you know, backing ourselves and we've got this? Yeah. And so I think maybe the most important thing to remember is that the day your child is born, you also are born. You are born as a parent. And what's really fascinating about that, when we look at the literature around how we are most likely to parent, um, what we find is that we tend to emulate the parenting that we received as children, even when we swear up and down that we will not do that. And As our babies enter into the world, there's some kind of a rekindling of something inside of us. There is a familiarity with the parent-child relationship. Or if I say that word slightly differently, there is a family-arity with that um, parent-child relationship. Because if you think about it, as a parent who's now just had a child, you have um, been in a parent-child relationship before when you were the child. Mm. And now you are re-entering the parent-child relationship for the second time in your life, or if you have multiple children, third or fourth or fifth time in your life, you're re-entering the parent-child relationship. And what we know from the psychological experience of re-experiencing things that are family-er or familiar to us um, is that we are going to be triggered by those experiences. And so we almost become somewhat um, childlike or infantile in the way that we go into, oh, oh no, I got this kid, and what am I supposed to do now? Um, Because we're not really thinking with our grown-up, very present, really regulated adult brains. We've kind of um, flipped a switch and regressed to kind of a younger version of ourselves. And sleep deprivation definitely does not help that. And the hormones, all of the hormones. And, you know, you're, you also, especially uh, as the, the female, if you've given birth to a child, your body is in recovery from this extraordinary process. And so there's just layers of things that empty out um, our coping reserves, which makes us more vulnerable to, um, you know, 
being at the effect of these triggers and what I talk about as being an age regression. Um, that is what sets the stage for how we're going to navigate those first years of our children's lives, that we must understand it will be layered. There will be a big piece of that that is going to become all about our own growth so that we can show up and be all about our kids' growth. And it has to be those two things in tandem. One can't occur without the other. Oh, gosh. I I, I really kind of wish I'd known a lot of this stuff <laughs> when I did bring my daughter home from hospital. Because do you know what I was really focused on? As I said before, I was trying to gain a sense of control in what felt like the most uncontrollable, topsy-turvy time of my life. So what I did was I read those sleep training manuals and I had the most rigid routine printed out and stuck on my kitchen wall. And I would live my life by the clock. And uh, I, I look at it now and I think, oh my gosh, and I sort of, you know, feel a lot of compassion for that person that I used to be. My daughter just rolled with the punches, but I was, you know, living life by that schedule and that routine because I thought that was the right thing to do. What do you say about sleep schedules and sleep training? Mm -hmm. And so really sleep training is for the grown-ups. It's not for the children. And uh, I'm not a proponent of extinction methods in terms of sleep training, like cry it out kinds of approaches, uh, because we are aware that in the earliest um, months and years of a child's life, they are really coming into an understanding of who they are in the context of this world that they've been born into. And the the understanding of self as worthy and, um, you know, uh, all of the pieces that come with that is very much in development. So we don't want to do anything on purpose that has the child feeling abandoned. Having said all of that, um, there is this kind of um, interesting seedy underbelly that often develops alongside the narrative that we must respond to our babies and not leave them cry and all of that kind of stuff. And the seedy underbelly is that it creates this anxiety in us as parents that we have to be hyper responsive to every little sound and every little noise and every little everything or we're leaving them to feel abandoned and then we're going to ruin them. And so a lot of times what happens in sleep is that um, because of how the parents are moving around sleep and kind of intruding upon sleep, um, the, the child then develops uh, challenges with sleep. And so, you know, when I speak to um, the people out in the world that are the, the attachment-based sleep consultants, uh, it's very clear that their interventions are focused on the adult's behavior around the sleep. And so, you know, we need to be responsive to our children's needs and make sure that we aren't becoming anxious about their sleep ourselves, which tends to undermine the whole process. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting because I'm sure a lot of parents would think to themselves, there's no way I would do anything to intrude upon my child's sleep. You know, <laughs> you're kind of creeping around the house and just crossing your fingers and praying that it will last for another 20 or 30 minutes. So what are we doing that's intruding upon our, our baby's sleep? Yeah, so it can be a variety of things. First of all, um, children are master energy readers. And so if we've become like, oh, you've got to sleep. <laughs> um, and, you know, really just so desperate for our kids to sleep. Our kids are sniffing the air and they're like, oh, mom and dad aren't cool right now. They're not settled around all of this. So I won't be settled either. And so kids do tend to pick up on that if we've become very kind of embroiled in the pursuit of my child must sleep or I'm going to lose my ever loving mind. The other thing that we do is if you're, you know, if you're listening to that anti cry it out kind of um, stuff around sleep training, uh, and so you're like, okay, I'm not supposed to wreck my kid. Uh, I have to respond to my child so that they don't feel abandoned. Then what happens, you know, when babies sleep, they're noisy and they're kind of all over the place. And so we, we rush in to provide comfort because that's what the experts have told us to do. And yet the baby wasn't even awake. And so now we've actually um, uh, sort of woken our baby up unintentionally, yeah. um, thinking that we're doing the right thing by um, hyper responding. And then the other piece is when we get very panicked about our children needing to sleep, we tend to go in with a lot of crutches and sleep aids um, that 
kids don't actually need, and those things begin to impede sleep as well along the way. And so you can see how all from a really um, well-intentioned place, it goes a little bit off track. Oh, absolutely. And and one of the things that really struck me when I became a parent was I had no idea how polarized the world of information was in, mm. in that space. Uh, there's so much literature and so many black and white opinions of what the right thing is to do. How do you as a new parent navigate through that and know who to listen to and who not to? Yeah. And I think the best gift, which is going to sound crazy because I'm basically about to talk myself out of a job, but the best gift that you can give yourself as a parent is to not um, crowdsource for information on what is the right thing to do for your child, because there is no expert on your child except for you. And there may be things even that I would recommend from the science of child development, and you would hear it and you'd be like, yeah, you know, I don't think that fits for my kid. And so we really have to sit in our own wisdom to know that we are born to this kind of job. We are wired as human beings to really do a fantastic job of raising our young. And if we can make the outside world just be very, very quiet and listen to our own mind, our own intuition, our wisdom, our inner world, then we often will arrive at the right thing to do for our children. And when you're in that kind of a mindset, then you can go and read a book and still hang on to yourself. So you don't feel that you actually have to execute all of the suggestions in the book to the letter in order to be a good parent. You pick and choose. You decide what works for you and what works for this child. And um, and you have two children as well. Uh, and my guess is, you know, they're very different from one another in terms of the way that you've figured out how to respond to them and the things that they need over the years. Um, and so uh, for us to just sit in our infinite wisdom as parents and then, you know, seek out information from that kind of a mindset. Yeah, yeah. I love that approach. That's really lovely. Now, one of the um, things that you are really big on, and you've even written a book all about it, is discipline without damage. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, we, even those of us who haven't had, or we don't believe we have had um, great parenting experiences ourselves in the way that we were parented, that, that there is sort of a residual effect of how that's carried on. And I know, I mean, I I'm a child of the 80s. My parents smacked me. My parents used a wooden spoon. I mean, that's just what happened back then. Of course, we don't do that now. Um, actually, if you wouldn't mind, do you mind covering off why we shouldn't smack our children? What is the effect of that on their brains? Mm-hmm. So there's a few sort of um, really important precursor pieces. One is that children behave as they do because they're children. And what I mean is that their brains are, by definition, still developing and growing. They're not tiny adults. They can't manage their impulses. They aren't able to put other people's feelings in front of their own. And so they're just, you know, they're not, they're not going to share. They're going to hit somebody if they want to steal a toy away from them. They're going to have meltdowns when it doesn't go their way because that's all part and parcel of having a young brain. And when we penalize children on any level, uh, for being the very ones that they are, we send them a message starting in the early days of life that they are not okay, that they are not acceptable, that they have fallen short of the mark, that they are not good enough, they are not worthy enough, they are not... Um, uh, they don't belong, right? And so when we react to children's behavior with shaming kinds of practices or practices that have an experience of relational disconnection at the core of them, then we really get ourselves into um, a not great space in terms of the impact on the child. With smacking in particular, the problem with that is that it teaches our children all of those yucky things that I just talked about, and it puts them into a really profound, immediate headspace of fear. 
And we know um, that certain parts of the brain get very kind of um, activated by that, um, and that that actually results in a shutting down of emotional systems uh, and a numbing out and a tuning out. And so we end up actually growing up children to become adults who are going to be much less capable of managing their emotions and regulating themselves in adulthood. Um, that is to say that they will be much more prone to things like um, issues with anger, issues with anxiety, um, uh, challenges around depression, uh, managing their stress levels, all of that kind of stuff is linked back to those kinds of early experiences. We do not want to teach our children that they must listen out of fear. Rather, we want to create an environment for our children that is conducive to growth and have our children leaning into our care and following our lead because we have established a healthy, trusting relationship with them. Absolutely. So as a child of that generation who, you know, I myself was smacked and, and I know a lot of people who are like, I was smacked, I'm fine. Um, but, you know, as you say, it could have deeper consequences. Mm-hmm. What do we do instead when we're sort of reaching into our toolbox of, well, I was disciplined that way, this is kind of all I know. Um, mm-hmm. what, what do we do? How do we, how do we discipline without damage? Yeah, so the the place to start is um you've you've led into it so perfectly with the way that you phrased the question, is that we have to understand we will parent as we were parented. So you are likely, if you were smacked, you are likely to default to smacking or to a verbal or an emotional equivalent of smacking. And so the first impetus is really to um, make sense of in your own mind why that actually isn't okay. And in the words of Maya Angelou, when we know better, we must do better. And I'm going to tell you right now, we got a whole heap of data and science um, that is essentially irrefutable at this point uh, that um, really tells us those kinds of approaches, they don't work in the way that we want for them to work. Um, And if you're a grown-up that's you know, grown up to say, well, I was smacked and I turned out just fine. And we're now having a conversation about whether or not you should smack your child. I mean, you're a grown up who grew up thinking it was okay to smack children. Did you really turn out okay? <laughs> you, like, sometimes we need to have that kind of a full out conversation around it's, this is not okay. It, it, it's, um, it's akin to saying uh, th- that, you know, the sky is purple. At this point, it is so very locked tight that data around smacking that we just, um, it's not something that we um, need to be doing for our children. And so when we can make sense of the why and the impact that that has on our children, it dances us towards solutions around discipline that are going to be fueled by connection rather than disconnection. And I'm talking about not just physical connection, but the emotional relational connection. So think about things like timeout. When you put a child in a timeout, at least when I was a doctoral student, this is how we were trained. Uh, You are to separate yourself from the child. You are to withdraw all attention um, from the child. And they're to sort of sit in this isolated experience of being um, cast out of the group, so to speak, cast out of the relationship so that they can learn their lesson. Because the most important need that a human child has is connection, attachment to their significant caregiver. And so you can see how a timeout puts the connection on the line in a giant sacrificial play in order to secure good behavior. And we could apply the same logic to things like consequences, contrived consequences. You did this, so now this shall happen to you. Um, Or a removal of privileges. You did this, and so now you don't get to do this. Um, If you think about how do you come up with that zinger of a consequence or that zinger of a privilege that you're going to remove in order to teach the lesson. You're coming up with those things based on your intimate knowledge of your child because you're in an intimate relationship with them and now you're using it against them. It would be like me coming home from work today and saying to my partner, uh, why is the house such a giant disaster? What do you do all day long? And him saying to me, don't speak to me that way. No coffee for you tomorrow. Hang on, that would be a terrible punishment. (laughs) So, what do we do? What do we do instead? Because obviously, we don't want to be, we don't want to teach kids that 
that whatever they, you know, they can just do whatever they like and behave in a way that, that is terrible, you know, hitting hitting their sister or whatever it is. So the idea is that you have to be firm as a parent. This is not um, me advocating for, um, you know, Disneyland parenting or what I sometimes refer to as flowery meadows parenting, where we're just supposed to release them to the flowery meadows and watch them blossom. That doesn't work. Kids need structure. They need rules. They need routines and they need boundaries and they need grown-ups who can hold all of that in place with a heaping dose of kindness. And so it's about striking the magic balance of being both firm and kind at the same time. And from there, we come up with the stepping stones to discipline without damage. And really what it's all about is um, um, making sure that you have a relationship that's working well for you so that your child uh, looks to you as their north, that your child actually likes you and desires from that space to do your bidding, and then responding in the moments when it goes sideways with firmness and kindness. You don't need concocted tricks and strategies to control your children. You need the power of relationship and the capacity as an adult to remain emotionally present so that you can be firm and kind without losing your shizzle all over your children. <laughs> Would you mind if we went to like a specific uh, example of this, just so that we can get it clear in our heads of this strategy in the moment? Say that, um, well, let's go back to what I just said before about sibling rivalry. That's a big one for me in my house. And sometimes my children can be downright awful to each other. They can be quite sort of violent at times as well, which makes me feel awful as a parent because, of course, you then internalise that and think, gosh, what kind of kids am I raising? What have I done wrong? But in the moment, let's take it away from me for a second. How do I deal with that when my child does something, you know, that's that's quite toxic to the other child. How do I show them that that's not okay behaviour but do it in a way where I'm not losing my shoes and um, I'm not doing further damage? Yeah. And actually, you know, you were saying kind of the narrative that you immediately have running in the back of mind was which is something along the lines of, oh, no, like why is my kid being so awful and have I done it wrong? Yeah. How is it that I've grown a child? We actually have to start there because we've got to make sense of within ourselves, why are we having that reaction to something that's really typical and normal within a family system for children who are just going and growing and trying to find their way? That we fall into this hole of, I did it wrong, um, probably because of some of the experiences that we would have had when we were children, when our very minds were being formed by the way that we were being responded to, including in discipline. And so it's always important to take the wide-angled lens and look at the parent piece of that and what we're sort of creating in that moment with our thoughts. And then when we look at um, you know, sibling interactions and what it is to be a human being who's finding their way in this sibling kind of relationship, we can see developmentally how normal it would be for those um, relationships to experience occasional flare-ups. We can see how underneath mad, there is always sad. And so if we have a child who's aggressing upon a sibling because they're angry with them about something, we actually know that underneath all of that, if we were to drill down, we'd get to that child's sad, that the acting out is coming from, you know, there's something going on inside the child and there's maybe a dynamic within the relationship or within the family that needs addressing. And so there's always a reason. We don't ever engage in those behaviors just for a good time. We engage in those behaviors because we're attempting to communicate about something that is as yet unresolved or not working out for us. And so the idea then as a parent, you know, if you've got a sibling who's just bopped another sibling on the head or done something unkind to them, you don't then just sit back at the sidelines and be like, oh, it looks to me like you're processing something really deep, <laughs> right? Of course, as a parent, um, to go back to what we were talking about just a moment ago, you need to be firm, 
And so you step in and you say, with what I like to refer to as your great mother voice, which is a little like Gandalf, who's like, you know, slamming his staff <laughs> into the ground and declaring, thou shalt not pass. You say to your child, that will stop. So you take command of the situation and you don't be angry. That's not an angry voice. That's a very firm and that is done. And then you move right into kindness. It looks like you're having a hard time. Let me just help your um, sister. She's a little upset. So I'm going to go and uh, get her a drink of water and I'm going to come back and I want to talk with you uh, about how you're doing and how we're going. And we're good, son. I got you. I got you and I got this. I'll be right back. So then you go tend to the wounded sibling. You circle back to the other child and you say, you know what? I know that the truth of you is that your heart is gorgeous and full of love and full of goodness. So I know that, you know, whatever it is that he just did uh, is not, is not who you are, that there's something up for you. And we can talk about that now. We can talk about that later. I do want for you to know that in our family, that's not the way we solve our problems. And so if you run into this challenge again, I expect that you're going to come and find me and we're going to have a discussion about it. Am I clear? Mm, That's really beautiful. What about... What about lying? As children get a bit older, that's something that I think a lot of parents find really difficult. Uh, They see it as almost um, an affront that their children are being deceitful. How how should we, A, frame that in our own minds and B, how do we deal with that? Yeah. So always take it back to development and to the tone of the relationship between you and your child. And you see... There's two reasons that children will, quote, lie. One of them is that they're trying on an escapist fantasy. And so it's not a lie in the truest um, sense of that word. What it is is that the child is like, huh, I wonder what it would be like uh, to, you know, be the kid who had, you know, done some crazy thing or um, accomplished some crazy accomplishment. I wonder what it would be like to be that kid. And so they kind of try it on for size by telling a story to somebody that they are that kid and then seeing what the reaction is like. So it's a little bit of an escapist sort of thing. And it's kids just like working to make sense of the world. The other reason that children lie is to avoid being seen. So if I feel like my, that who I really am is not going to be loved and accepted, and in addition to that, if who I really am in this moment or five minutes ago when I did that thing, if who I really am is going to get me into trouble and have me suffer the wrath of my parent uh, or have me experience relational and or physical disconnection uh, from my parent, um, then I'm going to lie because I got to do that to save my soul. And so they lie in order to not be seen, or they lie in order to try something on for size. Either way, they can't be blamed for lying. Mm. So how do we as parents um, help them by showing them in a kind way that that's not cool behavior? Yeah. And so early on, I remember my boys uh, trying, trying things on for size and saying, you know, telling little stories every now and then. And I would sometimes get really involved in the story and I would like amplify the story and become part of the story with them. And then I would say things to them like, now, that's just pretend, right? That's not real. So that would be, you know, between the ages of kind of three and five of laying that foundation between what's the pretend world or the play world versus what our real world is. I didn't say things like you're lying. That's not true. In fact, I played along with some of it and then said, and this is different from the real world. As my children got older, in the off chance that they might lie about something, I was very careful. And you guys, you got to know that I wasn't always perfect at it. And you don't need to be perfect at it either. (laughs) 
But I was very careful to make sure that my children knew that the culture of our family was one of telling the truth and of being accepted who we are, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so if they did something uh, that wasn't in keeping with our family's way of doing something, uh, and they lied about it, I would circle back around to that and say, I want for you to know that you will always be loved. You will always be accepted and you will never be in trouble for telling the truth. Mm. And so that line is one that my boys know deep in their hearts. You will never be in trouble for telling the truth. Might there need to be, you know, some follow-up stuff around certain situations if you've been involved in something and we need to make it right or whatever? Yeah, but you won't be in trouble. You won't suffer my wrath. You won't be cast out because you told the truth. And I got to tell you, having two teenage boys right now, 13 and 16, who are stretching their arm forward into the independence of adulthood and, you know, trying out new freedoms and all of those kinds of things. This stage of life, I've been so grateful that my children know to come to me with the truth. Oh, definitely. That's a really lovely way of looking at it. And thank you for sharing that story. Um, you said something just now about how you're not perfect. And one of the things that, that you've said in the past is that um, it, you don't have to be perfect in order for it to be perfect. You just have to be good enough. Mm-hmm. I really loved reading that. That made me feel a lot better, actually. Do you think we often strive for perfectionism as parents and then that's why we beat ourselves up? Oh, yeah. We live in a culture of feeling like we must perform in order to be worthy, to be valued, to belong, to be accepted. Um, We probably learned that when we were children, and we definitely bring that forward into parenting. And it's an interesting thing, you know, um, like my grandmother, God rest her soul, She would, like, if she knew that my job had become being a parent educator, (laughs) a parenting educator, she'd be like, girl, you be crazy. Why do parents (laughs) need to be educated? Like, what are we doing here? And so it's an interesting thing that there's this whole parenting industry that's developed over the last 20, 30 years where we feel like in order to be good parents now, we have to be hyper consumers of all of this sort of information. And then I think with the advance of um, social media and our exposure to people's, um, you know, color corrected lives, the way that uh, we we portray ourselves as parents on social media. And so the idea sort of um, comes out of that parenting industry and translates into the social media world. And then we look around and we're like, oh, but all the other parents seem to have it together. And I'm the only one who's growing up little psychopath children that melt down all the time <laughs> with a super messy house. And I hate my husband, you know, uh, six days out of seven. And um, you feel like you're alone and all of that. And really, when we look at uh, what it takes for kids to grow in a beautiful, organic, resonant way, and we look at the kind of parenting that goes into that, the data is something like 30% of the time you need to have it pulled together. And the rest of the time, as long as you're working to sort it out, you golden. Oh, and one of the things that I've heard you say, because it's such a common thing for us to, as parents, we put our children to bed and then we beat ourselves up about the day that's been and we step through mentally all the things that we've done wrong in the day and we feel this immense sense of guilt either for working too much or putting them in front of screens for too long or, you know, we've reacted badly over something. And and when they're asleep, they're so angelic and peaceful, even, even as teenagers, and we beat ourselves up mentally. But one of the things I've heard you say is that, well, the day has unfolded exactly as it should have. Would you mind expanding on that? Yeah, it is my very firm belief that nothing in the universe is random. Everything happens with purpose and for a reason. And the logic behind that is way above my pay grade, but I lean into the belief nothing is random. And so if you've had a crazy kind of day where you really haven't behaved your best as a parent, you really, you know, you've, 
you've let too much screen time play out or whatever it is. You yelled, you yelled at your kids. You were awful to your partner. You, whatever you had this day, it was supposed to be that way because it didn't happen to you. It happened for you. You were meant to reflect on the happenings of the day and figure out what is the learning from this day for you. How, how is it going down and why? And, you know, I, I love that I get to exist in this space and have conversations with people like you and connect with moms and dads and other big people all around the world. And um, th my capacity for doing that has come out of the reality that I have walked in the darkness of it, that I am, uh, I'm divorced. Uh, I've had a very challenging um, uh, separation over the years. Uh, I have a child with special needs. Uh, I, it, there's been a lot of things along the way. And in every moment, it was all happening perfectly. So that I was here, I was able to learn the lessons that I'm here to learn. And so that my children get to have the opportunity to experience challenge because where there's no challenge, there's no growth. And so if you have a crazy kind of day, you just kind of develop this understanding. Okay. Yes. Today was a growing day. <laughs> <laughs> just briefly. I'm, I'm also divorced. And one of the big things that I had to grapple with when I was deciding um, whether to leave that relationship or not was the impact that it would have on my children. And I know from speaking to a lot of girlfriends that some of them are in their marriages only because they don't want to have that negative impact on their children that a divorce in their mind would bring. What do you say about that? Is there a way that we can navigate through the end of a relationship without messing up our kids? Yeah, that's the next book. <laughs> oh, good. Um, it's not divorce that wrecks our kids. It's conflict that wrecks our kids. And so, um, you know, uh, there is something very sacred about the institution of the family. And what I have um, woven as a narrative for my children and something that I deeply believe in is that families continue to exist beyond divorce, just in a different form. And for us to really understand that our job when we come out of a relationship is um, to um, heal that relationship. Uh, when children get to experience divorce in that way, it won't be a damaging kind of thing. Will there be loss that they will have to process around that? Yes. Will there be upset and grief and all of those um, difficult emotions for your children? Yes. And if you are able to construct a relational environment in your family system that is not toxified by conflict in an ongoing way, your kids are going to be just fine. And not only that, they're going to grow through this in ways that um, expand their potential as they head off into their own adult lives and exploring their own relationships. Well, thank you so much. And um, I think that will be an absolute cracker of a book that is very <laughs> welcome in this space because there's not much out there about this. Now, we've spoken so much about parents. Before we um, finish and wrap up the interview, I want to touch on building confidence in our children, especially in this world of compare and despair on social media. My daughter is, as I mentioned, just about to turn 13. Um, she is starting to become really aware of uh, how women are portrayed on social media and being bombarded by a lot of images of how teenage girls, you know, quote unquote, should look and how her friends are posing and all the filters. And, and I am, am struggling to give her messages about retaining her individual sense of self-worth. How do we speak to our kids during this time? Yeah. And so the hope would be that we start to really lay the foundation for confidence in our children when they're very young, that we give them this 
enduring message that they are always accepted for being exactly the one that they are. And to give it to you a different way, they are never made wrong for being exactly the one that they are. And so you can see how important that relationship-informed approach to parenting becomes right out of the gates. And as your children, um, for your daughter, I mean, she's really, you know, stepping into that world of adolescence where uh, she's going to be much more open to the views of the world and um, and uh, receiving information from peers and all of that good kind of stuff. What children need to know at that point is, A, that they're always um, accepted for being the very one that they are, and B, that I see the world as I am, not as the world is. And if that be true, then everybody around me also sees the world as they are, not as the world is. And to put that in child-friendly terms, you know, if my one of my boys comes home from school and says something about somebody being unkind to them or whatever else, I want for them to be heard in that. And so I will say to them, tell me how that was for you. Uh, and I want to hear from them about their experience of that. And then I circle the conversation always around to, and what does that tell us about that other kid? Mm. And my boys know then that the conversation will turn to, you know, something along the lines of hurt people, hurt people, or whatever is appropriate for that situation. And so as your children head out into the world and suffer kind of some wounding, uh, and become at the effect of being in the world to come back to the truth of who they are and to really shine light on the truth of who others are so that uh, we always know that we are perfectly imperfect. There is no, um, we don't have to prove that we are enough because we are by default enough. Wow. I would love now, I've got a few questions that I always finish up on. The first one is, what is your number one confidence tip? If a, if a parent came to you and said, I'm, I'm just feeling like I'm doing everything wrong, what's, your, what's a go-to quick hack that we can draw upon for more confidence? I would say that you are doing it exactly as you are supposed to be doing it that it couldn't be any other way in that your child chose you, which means that there's something about you that is unique and wonderful and exactly designed for the child you are growing up. And so rest into the faith of that and step forward with that kind of energy and swagger in your very being. Yes. <laughs> Is there a book that you've read or perhaps even a favorite inspirational quote that's helped you on your way in your confidence journey? You know, I really believe that the epicenter of confidence is about um, accepting ourselves for who we are and knowing our goodness and our innocence and our um, um, magic. And there's a story which might sound like an interesting book to um, respond with. It's called The Little Soul in the Sun. It's written by Neil Donald Walsh. And uh, it's a, a book about how uh, when we can see the truth of who we are, it allows us to see the truth of who others are. And if we all walk in truth that way, then we all get to shine so bright that we will scarcely be able to be gazed upon. <laughs> and it's a beautiful story that I come back to for my own children. I uh, read that story myself, especially when I'm really fired up about something that's not going my way. And I remember that we're all... Um, we're all here as souls and everybody out there is your friendly soul and we're all just walking each other home. Oh, I'll link to that in the show notes. I've read some of his other books, but I'm not aware of that one. So I'll definitely look that one up. Now, what do you do for pure joy? Something that has no outcome attached to it. What do you, what lights you up? I eat. <laughs> <laughs> 
you a sweet or a savory person? I'm just a food person. I, <laughs> I love the ritual of breaking bread together as a family. I love cooking. I love cooking with my children. I there, There's a lot of love that centers around um, that ritual in, in our home. Uh, so I eat. The other thing is that I really, uh, I was a competitive athlete as a young child all through growing up. And I find as an adult, especially because, you know, I work a lot of hours and I'm uh, very busy career wise, that one of my true joys is um, just firing my body up and getting really sweaty and working out. And I have all these, you know, really fun things that I do. I kickbox and I cross train and I do other kinds of things. And I, it just lights my soul on fire. There's something about my body is meant to exist that way. Um, and so it is um, a way that I pour joy into my own cup. Yeah, yeah. Now, and finally, one of the things that that really resonated for me in other interviews that I've heard you in, and which is why I really wanted to talk to you is that you're the first to stick your hand up and say, there are days that I don't feel like I've got it all together either. You're not one of those experts that kind of preaches from an ivory tower. So what I would love to know is what are you working on right now in your own confidence journey to take you to where you next want to be in life? Oh, thank you for asking this question. I love that question. I, you know, really um, am focused on uh, the idea that it takes only one person to create a healthy relationship, which is an interesting kind of thing to chew on. And it circles back around to the world of separation and divorce. And I'm Uh, four years out of my divorce. And at times, the relationship that I have with my children's father is still very challenged. And so it's, I'm really in a, in a beautiful time of growth, looking at the idea that no matter what, that relationship can be sacred and holy and valued and healthy. And it only takes my mind to create that. And so I'm sitting with that in really interesting layered ways in my day-to-day life right now. Um, And because I'm um, at heart a a research scientist practitioner, uh, I'm always looking for data on how to flesh it all out. And so it's it's been a curious thing looking at the power of thought when it comes to the potential of relationship. Oh, well, thank you so much for everything that you shared with us today and also for everything that you are doing for families right around the world. Uh, I'm really grateful to you for your time and I can't wait for this next book. I think that will help even more people. Thank you. Thank you for shining a light on the things that are important for us parents out in the world, for us um, grown-ups out in the world and for having me on. Stay connected by following Claiming Your Confidence or me, Katrina Blowers, on Instagram. For more information on this or other episodes, head to katrinablowers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and make sure you share it with anyone you think would benefit from a confidence pick-me-up. Claiming Your Confidence is created and produced by me, Katrina Blowers. Audio thanks to Turn. Term 6 podcast productions. I hope you're having a great week. Thank you for listening to Claiming Your Confidence.